And the message of this sermon is called Jesus, the Servant King. Um, some of you might remember, or some of you might know from YouTube, the great Muhammad Ali. And his theme was, who's the greatest? I'm the greatest. Let's pick up the action here in John chapter 13, in verse 1. It says, it was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Who's the greatest? You know, this is a, a very special time. This is literally Jesus' last supper with his apostles, with his closest 12 friends, co-workers. He's poured out his heart to them. And it says he loved them to the end. More literally, it might say he loved them to the uttermost. Not necessarily time-wise, although he did, but, but with everything that was left in him. And yet, although John doesn't mention it, if you look at the parallel passage, you don't have to turn there, but in Luke 22, verse 24 and 27, we try to put it together. The timeline is probably just right before what's, what we're about to read. An argument breaks out. The scripture in Luke says, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Maybe James and John, you know, the sons of thunder, were thinking back to when uh, their mother came up to Jesus and said, I want you to put one of my sons to your right, one to your left. Maybe they were still kind of remembering that. Maybe Matthew wanted to be in that cabinet. He wanted to be the Secretary of State for Jesus. Who knows what they were thinking exactly, but... But we know from the scriptures that on their hearts, at this very crucial moment, their thoughts were somewhere else. Who's the greatest? The setting is the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Passover, when the Jews would come from all over Palestine and, and other uh, areas to celebrate this, this very important feast. They would all assemble in Jerusalem in remembrance of when the, the, the God's angel came over the houses in Egypt when they were in slavery and would only spare those where the blood of a slain lamb had been used to mark the threshold of that house. Hence the unleavened bread. There were, they had to eat unleavened bread to, to remember the haste with which they would have to leave. And the Passover, the angel passing over each of these houses. And so, do they get it? Do the disciples get it at this crucial time? Or are they still thinking along the lines of the world? A world that worships power, that worships earthly dominion. Even a religious world that expected a conquering messiah. Not what they had in mind necessarily. 
had the disciples bought into this religious worldview? Well, Jesus says to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors, for you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who sits at, who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table, but I am among you as one who serves? And you know, Jesus doesn't condemn a desire for greatness, a yearning to share in his glory. But greatness before God is not what we think. We will see shortly how Jesus completely upends our idea of greatness. Greatness is achieved differently before God. It says in verse, uh, again, verse 1, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the utmost. And so we need a servant king. Jesus moves on to show them with his own life, with his own hands, his own body, what, what they need to learn, what they're lacking. Let's read uh, in verse 2. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into the basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. So to understand this, first of all, this is a formal meal. This is a special time. Secondly, uh, there, was no, there were no chairs. People were reclining. It was a, kind of the, the height of a coffee table. It was shaped like a U. Uh, the most important person would sit in the middle, and then you would sit or recline, actually. Uh, the closest person to the host would be the person given the most honor. And, you know, you would be sort of leaning, sometimes on a cushion next to the table. Your feet would be pointing out away from the table. But detail number two, you know, first century Palestine, the roads were not paved. It was dusty. It was dirty. Animals were all over the place. And people walked around in sandals, so feet needed to be cleaned. And usually in the household, the, the lowest servant uh, or slave would have that duty. In fact, to understand how menial this was considered, uh, you know, rabbis taught specifically that uh, a rabbi, a master, could not ask his disciples to wash his feet. Uh, in, in other references I read, it, it, it said that it was taught uh, that a Jewish servant could not be obligated to take on this role. It was sort of left to uh, a Gentile servant. And so the meal's in progress. And guess what? There was no servant to take that role. So Jesus and the twelve, they're reclining at the table. They're probably feeling a little bit uncomfortable. They're like, well, I guess we're just going to have to do it this way. And <laughs> trying to keep their dirty feet away from each other. And, you know, no doubt is in the back of their minds. But no one says a word about it. 
No one volunteers for the job either. Maybe their minds are still on who's the greatest. And so Jesus, let's read over this again. It says he knew the Father had put all things under his power in verse 3, and that he had come from God and was returning from God. What do we call that? Jesus had incredible security. He knew where he came from, and he knew where he was going. You know, the disciples around him probably felt insecure. They felt, okay, if I'm a volunteer, Am I going to play the fool? You know, what are they going to think of me? Me? The lowest servant? Am I going to be washing Andrew's feet or untying Bartholomew's sandals? Maybe they would have done it for Jesus, but not so for their brother disciples. And yet Jesus' security comes from knowing exactly who he was and where he was going. He had all power and authority. He had come from God. He was going back to his father. But he loved his own, and he loved them to the utmost. Do we as disciples understand who we are as disciples of Jesus? Do we really understand? You know, when we know we are in God, does it really matter how we live? Honestly. Does it matter who's above and who's below? Who sits at the table? Who cooks the meal? Who's washing the dishes? Does it matter what they think about me? You know, uh, one of the characteristics that we see in Jesus is boldness. But when you dig a little deeper, I think security and humility precede that. I don't consider myself a bold person, although I try to imitate Jesus in his boldness. But I think for me, it starts first with understanding who I am in God. And the humility to say, it, it doesn't matter. I work at a hospital. Uh, I'm a neurosurgeon, some of you may know. And, you know, I go all over the hospital. And on one side of my brain, I'm thinking about my patients. On the other side, I'm thinking, I'm a son of God. I need to share this gospel message. So I go to the coffee shop. I talk to people as I'm scrubbing the four cases. And do I think, you know, as I'm sharing my faith with that coffee shop attendant, what are these people going to think about me? You know? Or am I thinking, I'm going to the Father. I'm a son of God, but I can't keep this for myself. Remember, about four years ago, I was scrubbing before a case, and uh, there was this gentleman cleaning some equipment next to me, and I'm thinking about the surgery, and I think, wow, I've seen this guy around. He's sitting over there, and I don't think I've ever talked to him about God. And I won't lie, you know, I thought, well, 
what are they going to think about me? You know, I'm, I'm trying to get ready for surgery. But, you know, when we look at Jesus' example, when we have that confidence, we can't help but talk about where we came from. And so I shared with Ignacio, who's now one of my best friends and, and your brother in Christ, who went on to study the Bible and, and sit among you as a disciple. Um, and I share this not to pat myself on the back, but, but these are the struggles that, that I encountered. And we have to remind ourselves where we came from. The servant king. In verse 4, Jesus gets up, he takes off his outer garment, and he wraps a towel around his waist, basically taking on the attire of a slave, not, not even a servant. How does Jesus, who was there when God created the universe, how does he manage this? Well, I dare say it's precisely because he was there when God created the universe. It's because he knew where he came from. It says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death of a cross. You see, Jesus had already made this decision way before, from the beginning, to humble himself completely, to make himself nothing by coming into our world and taking the form that, that we have, even to be tempted in any way, in every way that we're tempted, except he did not sin. When he submitted to the Father's will, instead of grasping to what really was due him, his very nature, Jesus had already firmly decided, I will take the nature of a servant. So this was a decision that he had made long before. He is among us as one who serves. Truly, he is our servant king. So, why do we need a servant king? Point number two, we need washing. We'll pick up in verse, chapter, uh, verse six. Scripture says, he came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answers, answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. I don't know if you guys have ever seen that uh, Febreze commercial where there's a, I think it's Febreze, there's a teenager, and he gets home from the gym or whatever, he takes off his sneakers, his uh, sweat socks, he dumps them in this pile, and he's like happy as a clam. And then his mother walks in, and she's holding her nose, and she's like, don't you like smell this? And 
Phrase Febreze, I think the, the catchphrase is, are you nose blind? So sometimes we're nose blind. We can get used to our own stink. You see, Peter does not see his need. At first blush, he, he seems humble. No, Jesus, you cannot, you shall not do this for me. But it, it, it's a prideful humility, right? He thinks, surely not. What I'm supposed to say is, never in a million years, master. But on a deeper spiritual level, Peter doesn't realize his utter neediness. In verse 8, he insists, no, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus replies, unless you let me wash you, you can have no part in me. Unless you see that you need to be washed, you can have no part of me. And it's amazing how this scripture, you know, it speaks to us in different levels. Yes, Peter, you need to let Jesus wash your feet. That is true humility. Unless Jesus submitted, unless Peter submitted to Jesus and allowed himself to be served in this way, he would never learn that lesson about humility. But on a deeper level, Jesus says to him and to us, unless you see your need to be washed, your need for your sins to be washed, not just by me kneeling on, this, on, the, on the floor with this towel around my waist, but me washing away your sins with my very blood. Unless you see that, you cannot have a relationship with me. And you know, we should be grateful because Jesus doesn't say unless you live a perfect life, unless you become a Bible expert, unless, unless Jesus just says having a part with me means seeing your need, seeing my need, and having the humility to accept that need and accept something that we cannot provide for ourselves. It's hard to make that connection, right? That there's something I can't provide for myself. I know for us men especially, it's hard to say, there's something that I can't do for myself. But Jesus brings that message loud and clear. Do we see it? Secondly, this will be subpoint B. You can go through the motions and not be clean. If we read a little further ahead in verse 10, he says, um, second part of verse 10, and you are clean, though not every one of you, for he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. So everyone in that room got their feet washed, except maybe Jesus. And this included Judas, right? He had his feet washed by Jesus. But in reference to Judas, without mentioning his name, he says, not every one of you is clean. And so think about it. Judas, he preached with Jesus. He walked with him. When Jesus sent out the apostles two by two to every town and village, Judas did that. 
when they were asked to leave behind families, jobs, and sacrifice. Judas did that. He was as much a part of this religion as the other 11. And yet, he was not clean. We can be very religious. We can go to church. We can pray. We can sit in the front pew. We can give our contribution. We can say amen. We can sing. Some of us very well. Some of us not so well. We can even go out and share our faith. But are we clean? Put your little bookmark here in John. And let's jump over to 1 John chapter 1. The first letter of John. Verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and declared to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. You know, it's better to speak up like Peter and sometimes put our feet in our proverbial big mouths than to hide in quietness. Listen, I, I don't like to put my foot in my mouth as much as anyone else. But imagine that Judas had spoken up. Imagine that night, that very night, Jesus opened up and walked in the light. That he said, brothers, my rabbi, th this is what's on my heart. I I've, my plan was to betray you in about 30 minutes. And by the way, I already got 30 pieces of silver to do it. And by the way, I've been stealing from the money bag. You think Jesus would have thrown him out? Jesus is there to forgive us. And yet Judas was not clean because he stayed in the dark. Brothers and sisters, we need to open up. We need to walk in the light. We need to have the humility to, yep, look bad. In order to be clean, we need to walk in the light. And that doesn't mean being perfect. It doesn't mean... Uh, being paranoid, but it, it means open gut level honesty about where we are. How's my purity? How's my daily walk with God? Am I using my time in a way that glorifies God? Am I in pornography? Am I wasting time? Am I overindulging? Am I using the time that God has given me to help those who don't know God? Or am I using it for myself? Again, God does not expect perfection from us, but to walk in the light. 
Point C, we need ongoing washing. It says, um, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. Going back just a little bit. So what's Jesus talking about? Well, for those of us who've decided to follow Jesus as his disciple, there is an initial bath, a cleansing. We hear the message. We study the scriptures. We come to faith. We repent of our sins. And we're washed in the waters of baptism. But guess what? We keep on sinning. Sin doesn't disappear from our lives. And not, not to trivialize sin, but hopefully we, we struggle mightily to overcome sin in our lives, to live lives that please God. But guess what? We're going to fall short again and again. And so we need this continual washing of our feet. Again, 1 John chapter 1, openness, confession, ongoing repentance, walking in the light. Let's move on to verse 12. We need to love as Jesus loved. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. So the, lit the, the literal focus of Jesus here, and this is important, is, is service. Is being willing to, to, to lower yourself, to, to say, I'm, I'm going to provide whatever service is needed. But at the same time, what, what is implied, and this is very important, is love. If we go back to the beginning of this passage, he loved them to the utmost. That's how it starts, right? Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should wash one another's feet. Jesus shows this amazing love through his service. And there's different types of love. There, there's, there's a love that, that's very common in the world. It says, I love you. I, 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 want, I want to have you. Uh, I want to own you. I want my needs met through you. And there's what, what the Bible calls agape love. It says, I love you. I want your best. I'm going to decide every day to work for your best. I want your freedom. I want to bring you to God. And I will do anything to get you there. It loves even when at times we may not like each other. God calls us to do this for each other. And by the way, when Jesus takes off the outer garment and he gets on his knees, he wraps the towel, he cleans their feet, he's not setting up a ritual. This is not something for us to necessarily do literally. But he's showing the depth of his agape love. What does it feel like when we're loved like that? Do you think the disciples sat there and said, wow, 
Jesus, you're humble. <laughs> that's, that's pretty humble. And maybe it did. But I think most of all, when we're loved like this, we say, wow, I'm really special. You really love me. I, it makes you feel great. It makes you feel that this person has given you a piece of their soul. You feel great because that person made you feel like the most important person in the world. He or she completely concentrated on you. I went back in my mind and I thought about disciples in my life. Christians who've had an impact in my life. I went back in my mind and my time machine to 1988. And it's funny because when people show you this love, you don't forget. 31 years later. I remember um, Chris Adams, my roommate, who stopped me in the middle of a um, courtyard in college and said, you want to come to a Bible talk? Like, sure, whatever. Even though I, I was not a very friendly person. I was not a loving person. I remember uh, Steve Newell, a preacher, a minister, who would come up from New York to Connecticut lead a Bible talk once a week, study the Bible with me. And I looked at his life, and I looked at how he loved me. Who was I to Steve Newell? But he took the time to show me agape love, to serve me. Remember Pete Cofield, who was one year ahead of me, who taught me, served me went and played billiards with me, helped me do my laundry, taught me you can have a pure life as a college student and be happy and love God and leave behind the junk that you've been chasing after. These brothers have stayed with me 31 years later because of how they loved me. As some of you may know, I think I mentioned this, I work as a physician, as a neurosurgeon, and, um, you know, sometimes my work is a struggle. It, it's hard. It's demanding physically, mentally, emotionally. And sometimes I can feel, this is fancy pants work. Am I, am I really serving like Jesus serves? Or is this just what I do for a living? But, you know, whatever we do, high school student, college student, laborer, professional, office worker, unemployed, businessman. Wherever we go, God gives us our opportunity as disciples to show this kind of love. There's no such thing as too fancy, too high, or too low. I wanted to, to share a little bit about one of my patients. Um, his wife actually gave me permission to share about her. Um, I'll just call her Mrs. B. Um, so I did surgery on this patient last week, and as is usual case, you know, I come in, I meet the patient just before surgery, I talk to them, has anything changed, how are you feeling? And uh, there's pressure on his spinal cord, and he's falling and falling. He already has Parkinson's disease, but he was stable, and now he can't walk. And I'm going in there to relieve pressure on the spinal cord. 
So Mrs. B, I'll call her Mrs. B, she comes in and she says, um, am I going to be able to take care of him afterwards? And he's, she is in a splint. She broke her collarbone, I find out. And to my shame, you know, what meant, went through my mind was, okay, so you're saying you want him to go to rehab. I didn't say that, but I thought it. And so he's going to be in the hospital three days instead of one day. And okay, um, but I knew my thinking wasn't right. So I, I, I just listened to her. said, we're going to take good care of him. I did the surgery. And three hours later, I come out. Surgery went great. I went to talk to her. But before I went to talk to Mrs. B to tell her how the surgery went, I thought, have I loved this person? I was thinking about getting the surgery done getting him in and out of the hospital. And I said, this is not how Jesus would approach this. I need to humble myself. And I just sat down and I talked to her for 20 minutes. And she told me how she broke her collarbone. And she's an engineer and she's trying to work from home and take care of her husband. I was very moved by her love for him. I was more than a little ashamed for my lack of love. But you know what? There's repentance. And so just in listening to her, I was so filled with, with joy in, in being able to love this person and just listening and telling her, you know what? Whatever he needs after surgery, we'll do for him. And so... You need to make these decisions all the time on a daily basis. The writer Timothy Keller calls it kneeling love. I think the Bible calls it agape love. And so Jesus tells us to go and do the same for each other. But you know, there's, there's also a potential trap here. We can say, I want to base Christ's love for me on my love for others. In other words, God loves me as much as I love those around me. And so we can also run ourselves ragged, burn ourselves out trying to become worthy of God's love. And that's not what Jesus is saying here. We can come to God and say, God, look how much I've loved. Look how much I've sacrificed, how much I've humbled myself. And then we start to not see how utterly needy we are. That we actually need a God to die for us. On the other hand, if we go back to the scripture, verse 17, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. The fact that we are loved, the fact that Jesus went there first is our motivation. If we say to ourselves every day, if my teacher and Lord did this for me, then I'm going to go do likewise. Our mindset can't be, God, you know, you better treat me right. Look what I've done. Look how I've sacrificed. 
but needs to be, Lord, I deserve nothing. But I've been so loved by you. If you did this for me, then I can start living this for others. And finally, verse 18, we need to have faith that withstands failure. Verse 18, Jesus concludes saying, I am not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen, but this is to fulfill this passage of Scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. I am telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. Very truly, I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. You know, Jesus quotes here part of Psalm 41, verse 9. I'll just read it. Even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread has turned against me. In the context of Middle Eastern culture, to have somebody as your guest in your home who shared his broken bread with you, to have that person betray you would be unthinkable. In a culture that valued hospitality in such a deep way, it's hard to understand, this would be unthinkable. And not just a guest, a man who had walked with him closely for three years. But Jesus was not taken by surprise by that betrayal. And he needed to tell the disciples that. Jesus did not just find out about this. He knew all along Judas would betray him. It was, it was written in the Psalms. He anticipates that betrayal without calling Judas out so that when it does come, their faith will not be shaken. Brothers and sisters, Jesus doesn't tell us there are not going to be difficult times. In fact, he tells us there will be trying times. There's going to be difficult times. And Jesus doesn't spare us from living them out. He doesn't spare us from knowing that they're going to come. And yet he wants to prepare us so that our faith will not be shaken. In verse 20, to conclude, Very truly I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me. He leaves them with this. He says, guys, the work, it's about to start. The work is not finished. Your part is about to start. And so disciples, brothers, sisters, when Jesus talks about anyone I send, he isn't just talking about the apostles. He's talking about us. Do we realize that we are sent by Jesus? For those of us, friends, family, those who visit us today, have you accepted the one that Jesus sent to you? Maybe it was a person at work. They say, hey, I want you to come to church. Somebody sent you a text. Somebody talked to you in the middle of Walmart. We need to make the connection with John 13. If you accept that person, if you accept their message, you're not just accepting them. You're accepting Jesus who sent them. And you're accepting Jesus' Father who sent him. In conclusion, we need a servant king. 
Jesus. We need him desperately. We need washing badly. We need to love as Jesus loved. And we need to have unshakable faith that withstands failure. Thank you very much.